Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm joined by Eric Trexler once again, uh, this time solo, which I'm excited to kind of, yeah, talk to you solo. It's been a while since we've just had a one-on-one time, and um, I love talking to Eric because, I mean, I just think you do a great job, particularly on podcasts. Uh, I think there are some people that are just made for podcasting. I'd say there's, I mean, luckily a lot of them who I bring on are, and I'd say particularly for you, Eric, you just do a very good job of speaking very clearly and but also kind of keep it interactive and not just like someone switches off so i appreciate you taking the time to come on i'm gonna choose to interpret that as uh, as a compliment there's a <laughs> i don't know if you've ever heard the phrase that somebody has a <laughs> yes, face yes. for the radio uh so <laughs> i assume that that's not what you meant but uh, no I, I really appreciate that i appreciate you having me on and it is nice to be on without uh having somebody to argue against. I feel like the last <laughs> couple episodes I've been on, it's been like, uh, you know, a versus type situation. Uh, so yeah, it's it's nice to catch up and chat here. No, for sure. They draw the crowds though. And I think, I hope at least when I, like uh, like we were just talking about the one you're on with Jeff um, and Menno and everyone was on that podcast. And when I do them on here, I, I hope that maybe the people involved take something away new and at least the listeners understand both parties position a lot better than when you see scraps over the internet. Um, although I can see it being tiring from your end for multiple reasons. Well, no, I mean, it, it's great. I mean, so I, I'm by nature, like very non-confrontational. I, yeah. I don't enjoy, you know, going back and forth. I, I'm usually just like, okay, I've got my understanding of it. It works for me. I'm comfortable with people disagreeing with that. I don't have that innate sense where I have to win someone over to my position if I feel confident enough in my position. But I do think it's great for um, getting new insight. You know, when somebody pushes back on your perspective, you have to think with a different perspective and develop a more nuanced understanding of your perspective. Uh, and I also think it's great for listeners because listeners might hear somebody talking about a topic that they're skeptical about. And as they're listening, they think, oh, if only I could be in the room, I would ask this question because I think that I think their idea is incomplete. And when you've got a debate, someone is there to hopefully ask those questions that you are thinking of as you listen. So I think it's a great, uh, a great way to set up uh, certain topics and episodes. Uh, but yeah, given my non-confrontational nature, it's nice to just get on and chat. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I'm the same. I'm, in, in fact, confrontation probably caused me too much stress to like be able to even voice my my points well enough so you do a good job of at least it not stressing you out completely or not enough so that you can't keep your kind of words together and make a make point or a sense of what you're trying to say yeah i appreciate that i was out of interest and you can kind of say pass on this because i didn't give you any forewarning and i've kind of just led this out of just just randomly because this episode's a trap <laughs> Some episodes I just like to talk to the guests and just I think for a lot of the people I talk to, people are interested in them as a person as well. I think a lot of the listeners like the science, they like applying it, but also it's nice sometimes to get that refreshing kind of voice of what that person on the other end, the scientist or the researcher who delves into these things, what are they doing? And I know you have competed in bodybuilding. Um, many of the listeners might not be aware. I think you're probably better known for all the work that you do within research and things, which I don't know how that kind of is for, is for you. But um, how, what are you up to like training nutrition wise? I was just thinking it today. I was like, I'm going to ask. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think it's great. I, I'd much prefer to be known for the work I do and the content I put out than my bodybuilding. Um, I, I am technically a pro. 
uh, but but I'm like that person who has to be shredded to even look like they're not out of place on the pro stage. I'm not, you know, a bigger natural competitor. So uh, so yeah, when when you fill that role in natural bodybuilding, where you're small for a natural bodybuilder, the last thing that you'd want is for everyone to say, uh, he's really just a physique, the content stuff is fine. But really, I'm here for the physique, because it, it's not much to look at. Um, so yeah, I, I love putting more emphasis on the content. And I think I think I'm a better content creator and scientist than I than I am uh, a bodybuilder. So that's kind of why my emphasis lies there. In terms of my own training and nutrition, um, I've really been focusing like during COVID lockdowns and isolation and stuff. I've really been focusing a lot more on uh, doing a lot of content, a lot of writing, um, working on some big projects, working on some research. Uh, training has really kind of uh, fallen down the priority list just because uh, I haven't. I actually haven't stepped foot in a gym for I think. 13 or 14 months at this point. Uh, Greg's got a home gym. I'll get in there every now and then to do some stuff. I've got some bands hanging on the railing beside me there, but uh, it's been fine. I've just been uh, focusing on other things. Uh, I've gotten really into Buddhism, which is sweet. Uh, So I've been doing a lot of uh, mental training. Uh, At least that's the perspective I take to it. But yeah, it's just been like focusing on different things. I feel great. Um, my body composition hasn't gotten as bad as I expected. And I actually do plan to return to the gyms in about three weeks. So oh, cool. I've already started my process of preparing for the hell on earth level doms that are coming my way. Because uh, I'm sure, you know, I'm going to want to dive in there and just pick up where I left off about 14 months ago. So I started to make sure that I'm more mindful of really beating myself up as much as I can so that uh, I've got some of that repeated bout effect ready to go and I can uh, acclimate right back into training. That's really, it's very interesting to hear because yeah, I think, I don't know. I I don't think many people are probably aware of, I don't know if you've even spoke about the Buddhism over on the strongest uh, by science podcast or something, but that's, that's super interesting. Is that more from a, I guess, yeah, what what led you to go down that route just out of interest? Um, you know, I'm going to get pretty philosophical here. I haven't talked about it much on the podcast just because I, like uh, I like to keep the podcast relatively focused. And if I'll be honest, I'm just starting to get into it. And so I don't know enough to really talk about it right. in a way where I'm like, I have something to share with my audience. Here's how Buddhism works. But I got into it... Uh, just because I think isolation was a really, a really interesting experience uh, with COVID. I think it was something that I know I had never had to deal with that level of of isolation for such an extended period of time. And uh, it's interesting, because it causes you to do a lot less outside in the world and a lot more inside your own mind. And Buddhism talks uh, a lot about our, our desires and how that, that can bring us some degree of suffering is the term they use, but it's probably not the perfect translation, but just a level of unhappiness and discontent. When we desire things that we can't currently have, that creates some conflict and some uh, negative emotional responses that I think Buddhism has some interesting perspectives on how to work through that and how to observe that rather than getting consumed by it. So I feel like it was 
an interesting time to look inward when, uh, you know, when going out was pretty much off the table for, for certain things. So I think that's what drew me to it. And yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. And I'm, like I said, I'm just getting started. So I, I feel like a jackass when I talk about it, because th then someone asked me literally any question about it. And I'm like, Oh, I haven't gotten that far yet. But, but yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I can reassure you, you know more about Buddhism than me. I, I, I essentially, yeah, I have some image images in mind and some general kind of just, I guess, commonalities of what people think of as Buddhism. But I've certainly, I mean, maybe I looked in it when I was like at school sometime, but I certainly know nothing about it. But it, it's very interesting because I think, I mean, a lot of the listeners will be able to relate to what you said there in terms of, uh, I, I don't know where I heard it. I think it was on a podcast they were talking about like in prison, one of the worst things that you can give to a prisoner is like isolate them. And they, they can't go out. And it's like, what's everyone had? They've just been isolated from everyone else. So I yeah. can see that. I mean, especially depending on the situation you're in, it can be really tough and the type of person you are. Yeah. And I, I've been, um, the, the main sources of information I've been getting this this knowledge from, it, it's been a very secular, very contemporary approach to Buddhism. So uh, at the surface level, it, it, you could really just say it's like, just teaching you how to regulate your emotions effectively and how to reconsider your first perspective on every thought you have. So at, at the most basic level, it's just like, hey, uh, stop jumping to conclusions and like emotionally reacting every time some thought enters your head. But uh, but then you can go all the way deeper into the the content and and it gets really cool and philosophical. So yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. I've got like five books that are that are coming. They're supposed oh, wow. to come in like two days. I can't wait. And that's big. If anyone has heard me talk about books on, on the Stronger by Science podcast, I do not read. I can read, but I choose not to. Uh, so for me to order a, a book, no less five books is a pretty big deal. That's, that's huge. <laughs> that's, yeah. uh, and then I guess I, I'd have to ask, is bodybuilding something that's like, I guess, still a driver for you but is the stage something that's just not on your radar in the future oh i i don't think i've earned the right to put it on my radar <laughs> based on uh based on my recent training uh practices but uh it's always there you know so i mean yeah. if i want to get back on stage of course i can uh but you know right now if you're to ask me to list my 10 most the 10 goals that to me feel most urgent most important and most impactful uh, me getting on on stage definitely isn't in the top ten right now, and and I think for anyone, and I, I talk I like I talk to clients about this all the time. If you're thinking about hey, let's start a prep, uh, it better be in the top ten. It probably ought to be in the top two. I think if because you know, I mean you've been there, Steve. It it sucks. Like it there's there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of hunger. There's a lot of, you know, you're lethargic, you're cold, you feel like crap. So like, if you, if that's not in the top two, you're going to get to a certain point where there's enough friction in the process that you're like, what am I doing here? So yeah, uh, it, it's something that I, I might return to. Um, you know, I definitely love training because whether or not there's a trophy at the end of the road, it's, uh, I feel great. I like being strong. I like feeling, uh, you know, I, li I like doing positive things for my physical health. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll certainly be training like a bodybuilder, whether or not I compete is just going to depend on basically, I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on that list of priorities and goals. And once once it jumps into the top two, then it's probably going to be time.
Yeah, I, I actually really like the way you kind of laid that out. It isn't something to get into on a whim by any means. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to cut and just extend that cut. Like I do a diet every year and this one will just be a little bit longer, be fine. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it starts to become number one at a certain point <laughs> where you have to give it that. Otherwise, you yeah. might not, especially uh, for the condition that you have to achieve nowadays for stage, it's just uh, crazy. <laughs> especially if you don't have any muscle. Like yeah. in, uh, <laughs> You're no, way too uh, harsh to yourself. <laughs> uh, it, it's in good fun. Uh, yeah. but, but it's funny though, because sometimes it'll jump into your top priorities and you didn't expect it. So when I, when I last competed, it was when I got my pro card and made my pro debut, I actually did not plan to do a prep. Uh, I was just like, Oh, man, I need to stop eating the right. way I'm eating because it's just ridiculous. It, it was ridiculous. So I just made some very basic dietary changes and all this body fat just starts dropping off at this ridiculous rate. And all of a sudden, I looked at the scale, I looked in the mirror, and I was like, I'm over halfway done with a prep. Like for me, a prep usually involves a loss of about 40 pounds or so. I'm like, I'm like 22 pounds into this and feeling great. And I'm about to do a dissertation to finish up my PhD. This is a convenient time to do a prep. So like, I might just keep dieting and see what happens. And and it went well. So like, basically, it, it, it was not at the top of my priority list, but then it kind of started working its way up. And all of a sudden, I was like, why, why shouldn't I do it? Like, I only right. have one other thing on the horizon here. So this can be number two, and, and and let's do it. So so yeah, it's, you just kind of stay in the game, keep lifting, keep enjoying it, don't force anything. And, and maybe maybe I'll be on stage again, who knows? For sure. Um, awesome. No, that was good to hear about. And I guess the listeners might want to know what we're actually were due to talk about. And that is something relating to bodybuilding. And that's something that was recently reviewed in mass, uh, which I, I just think it's a topic that is super interesting. Um, my girlfriend is vegan, so she's only recently become vegan. She was vegetarian, like a, almost her whole life. So it's something that I'm very familiar with. And she does it for kind of the ethical reasons versus yeah. everything else. And that's not really what we're going to be talking about necessarily. Um, but you recently reviewed, well, you called it vegan diets, not the game changer for hypertrophy, but a viable alternative. And I think uh, because veganism is becoming, yeah, something ever more popular for whatever reason. And there might be some bodybuilders who are wanting to, I don't know, utilize more of that approach, maybe go towards more of a plant-based diet. So I think this study you were particularly excited about. So I, I don't know if you want to start just kind of talking about what made this study different to others and then kind of just to see where you go and I'll, I'll pick away at some questions if that's all right. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I was really excited about this study um, and I had to make the title. I put a little dig in there for, for the Game Changers thing because on the podcast, uh, you know, I... Game Changers was a documentary about plant-based diets, and they made so many claims, uh, some of them funny, some of them intended to be taken seriously, uh, few of them really rigorously presented. So uh, I had to take a little dig, but but it was really inc it was really important when I just discussed that documentary. Okay, there's a silly documentary about this topic, but that doesn't mean we should hold it against this topic. You know, if you want to hold it against the producer, the director, that's fine. But it doesn't mean we should discard uh, the viability of plant-based diets. It doesn't mean we should assume that there are no potential benefits to be uh, enjoyed there. Or, or at least, you know, we can, like I said in the title here, view it maybe not as a huge step up in terms of health and performance, but maybe a totally viable alternative to an omnivorous diet. 
And one definition to get uh, to to address right out of the gate here is I'm going to talk about plant based diets, and I personally view them on a spectrum. So, like, it, it's not just I have a, a a vegan diet or I don't, right? So, you, you can view your your food selection as as a spectrum, and some people might be, you know, totally carnivore diet, you know, no plant based foods or you know negligible plant based foods. Most people, you know, just based on the numbers, have, have some type of omnivorous diet where there's some combination of plant source foods and animal source foods. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got totally vegan diets, you know, with, with no food uh, food items coming from animals. So we, we've got this spectrum. And when I say plant-based diets, we're talking about getting over into the ovo-lacto-vegetarian spectrum. Uh, maybe you're a vegetarian and you just eat eggs or you just eat dairy products, or maybe you are a vegan. So that, that's kind of the area of the spectrum we're talking about here. So plant-based doesn't just mean strictly uh, vegan. You know, you, you can say that certain certain diets are, are more plant-based just because they skew in that direction a little bit. So one of the reasons I was so excited about this new study was because we talk about plant versus animal-based protein sources all the time in the fitness world, the bodybuilding world. Uh, and I think generally speaking, there's a, a pretty solid consensus that when we look in a vacuum, a plant-based protein source is not quite as good as an animal-based protein source in most uh, cases. So, we, we we like to look at this very mechanistic approach to what makes a protein source good or bad uh, as it pertains to its ability to support hypertrophy or support muscle protein synthesis. And there, there are a few different ways to look at that from a mechanistic perspective. It, from one perspective, you might not be looking at effects on muscle activity or tissue, you know, anabolic processes whatsoever. You might simply be looking at a protein and assigning it a protein quality score. And there are different metrics, there's different ways to, you know, there, there are different scoring systems to give a protein its quality score. But generally speaking, the, the factors that go into a protein's uh, quality score essentially come down to, you know, is it lacking any key essential amino acids? And how digestible is the protein? Are we actually absorbing it and getting those amino acids into the bloodstream uh, at a reasonably uh, prudent rate of appearance? So we, we can look at a protein source that way. And when we do it that way, uh, th there's really no debate to be had there. When, when you classify a protein based on its amino acid uh, composition and its digestibility and its absorption kinetics, we, we definitely see that animal-based protein sources are higher quality than plant-based. Um, it's very, very straightforward. Uh, now, a different way to look at a protein's quality as it pertains to its ability to so, uh, support hypertrophy is to look at how does a serving of this protein actually impact acute measurements of muscle protein synthesis? So you can imagine a scenario, we bring people into the lab, they're totally fasted, we give them 30 grams of whey protein or 30 grams of soy protein. And we look at muscle protein synthesis for a handful of hours after that protein dose. And again, in those scenarios, we generally find that animal source proteins are better 
than the majority of plant-based protein sources. Now, not all plant-based protein sources are the same, right? So uh, the effects of 30 grams of soy protein are going to be different than 30 grams of wheat protein. When we look in isolation, you know, 30 grams versus 30 grams in a fasted state. Uh, and, and we're looking for a few hours, that kind of acute response in protein synthesis. But that's rarely what we're interested in. You know, when we actually talk about plant-based proteins, these lab-based scenarios and these kind of uh, kind of theoretical protein scores based on the characteristics of the protein, these give us valuable information. I'm not discounting the work that's been done there. It's very valuable information, but it doesn't directly address the question that most of us have in mind, which is, if I started taking soy protein after my workout instead of whey, Am, am I going to regret that? Or if I decide that I want to go from, uh, you know, a, a very omnivorous diet to a slightly more plant-based approach and replace some of my animal proteins, am I going to regret that decision? Or do I have to make some degree of accommodation to account for the fact that I went from higher quality proteins to lower quality proteins? And so it, it's really weird. For some reason, in the last few months, this area of research has been really active. Like, you know, one of the things that I was so excited about with my dissertation topic as a PhD student is there aren't that many areas. I mean, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Let me go back. Of course, research is always evolving, but in sports nutrition specifically, like if you want to get into creatine research, we know a good amount of what that does in terms of sport related applications. If you want to get into protein research, uh, you know, if studying whey protein, its effects on hypertrophy, a lot of those studies have been done. One of the things that excited me about my topic, which was uh, citrulline and nitrate and nitric oxide precursors, was that every couple months, there would be these huge papers that come out that make a huge impact on your understanding of the topic. Like we were still in that area where during my time as a grad student, someone would say, hey, did you know we store nitrate in muscle? And you're like, what? No one told me that, you know, like, I mean, this was big stuff that was happening, you know, real paradigm altering papers that, that come out every couple months. And yeah, for whatever reason, people decided, uh, I guess, within the last year to, to really get into a more ecologically valid mindset when it comes to comparing plant animal based protein. So, for example, one of the papers that came out within the last couple months uh, was a meta-analysis by Lim and colleagues. And they were looking at animal versus plant-based protein supplement studies. Uh, and so it, it was kind of one of those questions I, I, I alluded to, which, you know, you might be asking, oh, if all I did was switch out my whey protein and, and use soy protein instead, how, how's that really going to impact my gains? So this was looking at that. It was looking at in studies where people are just kind of consuming a fairly typical diet, uh, if, if all we're doing is a supplement intervention and we're just giving them either an animal supplement or a, a plant-based protein supplement, you know, do, are those really going to impact strength and hypertrophy to a meaningful degree going with one or the other? And the results indicated not really. Um, you know, th th there's, it, it was good meta, a, a good meta-analysis, which means that they looked at it from many different perspectives. So if you went into it and you really felt like arguing that animal-based protein interventions are superior you could get there um, based on the, the various analyses presented, but you, you'd also have uh, some good challenges from someone arguing the other perspective, from someone saying, you know, when you, when you look at the effects on 
for example, uh, just raw units, changes in lean body mass in these interventions, we're talking about a difference that favors animal proteins, but the difference is like 0.2 kilograms and it's uh, not significant. But then if you remove one of the studies, it becomes significant. You start getting into those types of, of, of arguments of, well, should we remove that study or this study? And the results change if we do one or the other. But ultimately, if we just leave the body of literature as it is, we're talking about 200 grams of lean body mass. So not, not a huge deal uh, when, we, when we consider the practical ramifications there. So that answers, in my opinion, an interesting question, which is just looking at supplementing your diet with one versus the other. Are you that much better off with an animal protein in the context of a typical diet? Uh, it doesn't look like it. And it, that kind of makes sense when we consider in an omnivorous diet, you've got plenty of essential amino acids in the bloodstream, uh, pretty much all waking hours of the day, right? We, we like to think of our meals as this like extremely precise process by which we increase amino acids and they drop back down to baseline because out of sight, out of mind. If I'm done eating, then I'm assuming my amino acids are just gone, right? But, but they linger like... One of the phrases that uh, Helms uses that I really like is he talks about it as a conga line with our meals, how they're just kind of bumping into <laughs> yeah. each other when we, when we consider digestion and absorption and blood responses and clearance from the blood. The idea that we've got these very discrete, you know, elevation and then back to zero with amino acids, it's not, re it's not a realistic way to view this stuff. And so when we consider, okay, well, you've, you've, had soy protein instead of whey in this type of intervention, you're on an omnivorous diet, you've got plenty of essential amino acids in your bloodstream, you're not critically lacking any key essential amino acid. And you got enough soy from this uh, supplement to maximally stimulate or you got enough leucine from the soy supplement, for example, to maximally stimulate a protein synthetic response. So you've got you've got the leucine that you need there, you, you've got all the essential amino acids that you need, you should be able to have a really robust response. And so that that's uh, a, a very intuitive finding from, from my perspective. But it leaves out a key question, which, you know, a soy protein supplement versus whey in the context of an omnivorous diet with plenty of animal proteins, that's very different from saying I'm a bodybuilder switching from an omnivorous diet, you know, most of my proteins coming from whey, eggs, meat, and I'm switching over to a vegan diet. You know, that is a very, very, very different intervention. And because we may not be able to have all that reassurance that we're getting all those essential amino acids from different animal source proteins in earlier meals and later meals and things like that. So again, within the last couple of months, two huge papers came out uh, and I reviewed both of them in mass. So one of them was a very short term but not as short term as some of the other studies I mentioned previously. So I talked about how we make a lot of inferences about protein quality based on that acute muscle protein synthesis response over like a few hours after a single dose in a fasted state. Well, in this case, the uh, study was looking at muscle protein synthesis over multiple days with resistance training done on a daily basis throughout those multiple days of observation. So this is getting us a little bit closer to you know, we've got this kind of question of, if I look at muscle protein synthesis over four hours, what does that tell me about hypertrophy? Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. 
All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't seem to correlate that well. When we look at it over three or four days, we're getting closer to something that can more uh, reliably predict hypertrophy. But of course, the, the best thing we can do is actually measure the thing we're interested in, which is hypertrophy. So this study was looking at multiple days in a row of muscle protein synthesis, which is a step in the right direction. And it was comparing uh, a vegan diet to an omnivorous diet. And the vegan diet was getting most of its uh, protein from mycoprotein. So it's kind of a, a fungus-derived uh, non-animal protein, uh, but, but it's a really nice protein source. It, it's got great digestibility. It's got a great, uh, a great composition of amino acids. Uh, plenty of uh, corn, sorry. People yes. People would know yeah. it's maybe corn, yeah. But the key. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think that brand name might be more recognized across the pond. I, I know okay. it, yeah, it's in quite America. Yeah, I, I had never heard of that brand name until uh, Greg told me about it. Um, but but yeah, so corn or mycoprotein. And uh, so, so they've got these two different diets. And, and the big the big strength of this study was that they made sure that both groups were eating plenty of total protein. So uh, both groups were having 1.8 grams per kilogram per day of protein, which is pretty squarely in the range that most people would say is pretty advisable. You know, usually people say 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram is kind of that comfortable range where we feel like we're maximizing anabolic responses to training. And so uh, it's pretty straightforward. It, they, they, over the course of this, uh, I think it was a three day observation period with muscle protein synthesis. They found that as long as these groups were uh, eating plenty of protein, uh, they, they had pretty sensible distribution of the protein throughout the day. Uh, within within that context, there really didn't seem to be a huge advantage of animal protein versus this mycoprotein heavy vegan diet. Uh, so so that was a, a really nice finding that you know as we get away from the mechanistic stuff and get a little bit more applied and say let's actually give this to people lifting weights and see what happens over several days. This was a step in the right direction of saying the differences between these, you know, high quality and low quality proteins might not be as big as we as we like to think. You know, there there might be, um, and this comes up when we look at the time restricted feeding literature, the the meal frequency literature. Uh, this comes up with the post workout protein timing literature. Just getting enough protein throughout the day and splitting it among at least a few meals seems to take care of a lot of the mm. stuff we worry about with protein. You know, we, we've seen this in many different areas of research where, you know, time-restricted feeding, are you getting enough opportunities to actually uh, stimulate muscle protein synthesis? Well, when we have the studies where they have an eight-hour feeding window and they're eating, you know, 1.6, 1.8 grams per kilogram per day, time-restricted feeding seems to be fine for supporting strength and muscle gain. So uh, th there's something to... The, the concept of just making sure you're getting enough total protein and getting, in my opinion, I think the evidence would say at least three decent servings throughout whatever your feeding window is. I, I would say the, the lowest I like to go with a feeding window is like eight hours in most contexts if we're trying to maximize hypertrophy. Uh, and that, that's great. It gives you, you know, you eat at noon, 4 p.m., 8 p.m. You get three great uh, opportunities to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and, and you're good to go. So that study was a step in the right direction for uh, empowering lifters to feel more comfortable 
adopting a vegan diet without feeling like they're sacrificing gains in the process. But the big paper, the one that you alluded to, uh, came out even more recently. Uh, I, I reviewed it this past month in mass. And this was really, in my opinion, tying it all together. So like I said, the best case scenario is we're actually measuring the thing that we're interested in, which is hypertrophy. And in this particular study, I love what they did. They, they got young, healthy folks to go on a vegan diet or an omnivorous diet. They did 12 weeks of resistance training, and they measured hypertrophy at several different levels, which I think is fantastic. Uh, because you'd like to see some degree of agreement from level to level to level. And what I mean by that is they used DEXA to look at uh, lean tissue of the leg. Uh, it was a lower body resistance training program. So they used DEXA to look at the whole leg, lean mass. They used ultrasound to look at the thickness of specific muscles, uh, so the whole muscle level. Uh, and then they also looked at fiber cross-sectional area. So whether you're looking at the whole leg, the muscle itself, or the individual muscle fiber, uh, they kind of looked at hypertrophy, all those different ways. And they, they also looked at leg press strength as well. So uh, the, the limitation of this study, you know, just in the interest of being transparent, something that, that is worth considering is it wasn't a randomized controlled trial. Uh, the participants were not randomized to the group that they were assigned to. In many cases, that, that might be cause for concern when it comes to the, the validity of findings from a study. Not that they become invalid, but that we, you know, we hold randomization uh, in very high regard in research as, as a really, really nice feature of a study that gives us a little bit more confidence in the generalizability of its findings. In this case, they didn't randomize, and I actually don't care. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I care enough to keep it in mind, but when you study vegan diets, it's very hard to tell somebody who's an omnivore, hey, meat is just off, any animal product, not even meat, is off the menu for you. That's a hard sell for a lot of people who are omnivores, and you can introduce issues related to people either dropping the study or just mm -hmm. not adhering to their diet effectively. Uh, probably the even bigger issue is you take someone who's a vegan, enroll them in your diet. They're a vegan in this scenario, we'll assume for ethical purposes. And you say, you know that ethical stuff that means so much to you? Let's just forget about it for 12 weeks. Who cares? It's fine. A lot of people don't want to do that. And, and so then, then you have additional issues where you're trying to find people to do this study and it becomes such a, a strange selection process of finding, you know, vegans who are willing to not be vegans for 12 weeks. It, it's, it, it's not easy to do that, you know? So, so I'm actually very comfortable. What they did was they enrolled all these people. They said, hey, you're a vegan. You're going to be in the vegan, uh, the vegan group. And if, if you're not a vegan, you, you can do the, the omnivorous uh, treatment group. So I, I had no issues with that. Uh, both diets, once again, had plenty of protein, 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. And the, the, uh, the vegan group, a large percentage of their protein, I mentioned the previous study, they were getting a ton of protein from corn or mycoprotein. In this study, they were getting a ton of protein from soy-based supplements. Uh, and so that's important to keep in mind, you know, uh, because it's not like they're just eating a bunch of wheat protein, which is generally regarded as pretty low quality, doesn't have a very good digestibility score, doesn't have very good amino acid composition. Talk about soy protein, which is a pretty good plant-based protein. But uh, in any case, what they found with this study is over this 12-week intervention, 
there was really no inherent advantage to being on the omnivorous diet uh, relative to the vegan diet. So wh whichever way you want to look at it, changes in leg press, changes in all those different levels of hypertrophy, the, the both groups, uh, a technical uh, interpretation of the stats is that they were not significantly different from one another. But just looking at the mean changes, looking at the way the data are distributed, you could say in a non-statistical sense that they are quite similar to each other. Uh, I, I always get careful about that because there are statistical tests to test equivalence. So I, I always like to separate, like I'm not saying they're statistically equivalent. I'm just saying these means are pretty damn close to each other. Uh, and, and to me, that can be pretty telling. So uh, in this study, like I said, very equivalent outcomes. And this is nice. I mean, 12 weeks looking at all these different measurements of hypertrophy and strength, I think these findings are really helpful and useful, but something to keep in mind here. And uh, I, I think this is critically important. They distributed their protein very sensibly and they had a, a, a really nice protein source making up the bulk of this vegan diet. And so what that means is when you look at the meal by meal uh, breakdown in this study, the vegan diet on four occasions every day was providing at least 0.3 grams per kilogram of protein in a meal. And most studies will, will suggest if you really want to maximize muscle protein synthesis as a young person in response to a meal, you want to have at least like 0.24 grams per kilogram in that meal. And you'd like to have somewhere around two or three grams of leucine or more. That, that Those are usually the numbers you shoot for. When you look at this vegan diet meal, meal by meal throughout the day, you see on four different occasions spread throughout the day, over that threshold of, of protein per meal and somewhere around two to three grams of leucine. So, so they had their bases covered in terms of making sure they were getting enough protein, uh, enough leucine, and distributing that pretty sensibly throughout the day. Um, and so based on these findings, based on this whole kind of collection, these three studies that have come out the last couple months, I'm really warming up to the idea of treating vegan diets as a fully viable alternative to omnivorous diets in terms of supporting hypertrophy and supporting a variety of training goals. But there are big caveats to keep in mind. I think uh, without question, you need to make sure your total protein is high enough if you want to have a vegan diet that supports hypertrophy to a maximal degree. I think you might want to be very um, cognizant about what is your main protein sources in your diet? So if you if you have a vegan diet that's heavily based on corn or mycoprotein and soy, uh, I think that's going to look potentially very different from, from uh, a, a diet that's mostly corn and wheat protein, for example. So you want to make sure that you've got your, your bases covered in terms of do my protein sources actually provide a comprehensive mixture of essential amino acids and leucine, you know, do, do, am I getting what I need? And I would say, if you if you really want to be extra cautious, within a given meal, you probably don't want a huge glaring lack of a particular amino acid. Now, you might be able to, you might still have plenty of it in your bloodstream from a previous meal, but if you really want to get down to maximizing uh, the efficacy of this approach and making sure that you're you're just not doubting the approach, feeling like you really have your bases covered. I'd say you might want to be mindful of getting at least three, maybe four or even five solid servings of protein per day, making sure you've got a nice comprehensive mix of amino acids uh, at those meals. 
and uh, you know, make sure that you, you're getting all the, the essential amino acids and the leucine that you need. Um, so I, I think overall, we, th- this is a good reminder, in my opinion, that we, we have to be really cautious about taking mechanistic uh, findings and necessarily extrapolating them to real world scenarios and assuming that there are no other complicating factors that, that might influence what we're looking at. So uh, w- with protein, it, it's fascinating because we, we've seen some of this mechanistic research, right, where we'll look at, you know, y- you consume protein, muscle protein synthesis goes up for a fixed amount of time, it falls despite the fact that amino acid levels in the blood are elevated, and there's this refractory period. And a lot of the evidence that we have for that is very controlled scenarios where people come into the lab totally fasted, no prior resistance training, and they have a relatively small amount of protein uh, per these doses. So you have a lot of questions when you say, well, what happens if I ate breakfast, then trained, and then had, you know, two grams per kilogram uh, per day of protein? does that specific timing related to that refractory period really matter all that much? You know, so it's an area of debate where some people say, let's take this mechanistic finding and assume it pans out perfectly. But then we look at some of the time-restricted feeding studies where people are eating plenty of protein and lifting, and some of those little nuanced mechanistic differences, they seem to kind of come out in the wash. They, mm-hmm. they, it doesn't mean they don't matter at all, but they have a small enough impact that they don't seem to re- really be driving the results of these more applied studies. And that's important to keep in mind. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think that's kind of my, my updated assessment of a vegan diet, it being a very viable alternative, but you still want to be mindful of, you know, what are my actual protein sources, because not all with with animal based protein sources, I, I think one way to phrase it is, it's just easier. You know, so it takes out all the thought because if if you're eating a bunch of eggs and fish and meat and dairy, you're fine with your amino acids. You don't have to take that extra step of saying like, oh, none of my protein sources have methionine. I feel like that's a problem, you know, because it is. Uh, With animal-based protein interventions, you don't have to take that extra step of worrying about digestibility, uh, which essential amino acid am I lacking? Because None of them. You're you're good with an animal-based protein. You're going to have very good digestibility and an excellent amino acid profile. These vegan approaches to replacing animal-based proteins are viable. They just require a little extra step of thought and planning. But if implemented well, uh, I see no reason why they would necessarily hold somebody back. I think that was more than i actually even expected uh so you went over actually a lot of the studies recently that you reviewed in mass not just this recent one which is great to get that backstory actually and hear about everywhere it's come from and kind of talking about that mechanistic data and explaining even yeah some of the unquestioned kind of uh sorry the the questions we have that are unanswered in terms of like people talk about like the protein full effect and the refractory periods and things like this and it's kind of like but it is kind of counter towards other evidence that we've got. So we kind of have that general recommendation that we don't even know is necessarily an, a must, but we know hit, hitting your protein at the end of the day is a must. And something that I think was great that you said there was, it wasn't just like a vegan can just match their protein and just spread it through the day and they're fine. They they do have to think about it. So where 
I don't know, you and me, I, I actually don't know what you, how, how you eat, but if we're eating, assuming you're an omnivore, you're having like your, your eggs, uh, they might have to look at, and they can have some pea and maybe some wheat and try, or rice rather, that's the one, pea and rice, and they might have to try and think about, okay, what's the equivalent of what I'm replacing here? Like you said, it's just going to require a lot more thought. And I think that's what initially put me off at least whenever mm -hmm. I was thinking about doing these things. And of course, it's not quite the same when you just from a preferences point of view, kind of trying to get these things. But I know there's uh, even companies now that are producing like vegan made protein powders that do have, I think, uh, I think I heard, saw Eric Helms did a review of kind of veganism within uh, the mass research reviews as well. And he talked about kind of these companies that are producing this protein powder that's like pea and rice. And there was a study on it and how it was equivocal almost to whey protein as well. So at least, like you said, the spectrum there, I think is really cool because people don't necessarily have to be all the way in, but if they want to try going further that way, uh, for whatever reason, they can start doing it without the worries as much as a lot of us kind of, uh, very anxious bodybuilders about our yeah. muscle and our food. <laughs> yeah. You know, one additional consideration that I think is really important to highlight is, you know, these, uh, th this vegan approach to eating we can we can deal with some of the shortcomings of the proteins just by some planning right like i said just kind of matching things up really well choosing higher quality sources um and, and there's a, a fantastic review by uh van vlier and colleagues that goes through a lot of different common um protein sources plant-based protein sources and compares you know which ones have the most leucine which have the most lysine the most methionine so it's a really helpful resource so that's one part of the equation another thing though is that with a vegan diet and this is if we're going all the way to vegan uh, there are going to be some uh, micronutrients that we have to be extra mindful of uh, anytime that you're cutting food groups out of a diet that, that's pretty much a red flag that there's you, you might want to check and make sure that there's uh, not something that you're forgetting and when we go to a fully vegan diet we find that we we lose some common food sources of some key micronutrients and we also we can replace them with vegan food sources but the bioavailability might not be equivalent so we have to be extra mindful of getting in in things like uh, like iron b12 uh, calcium things like that um, and that was actually one of the interesting things was that this most recent study that the 12-week uh, longitudinal intervention that that actually measured hypertrophy at baseline, they did notice some because they 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 weren't randomized groups. They they could compare habitual vegans to habitual omnivores. There there were some differences that I consider noteworthy when looking at their baseline blood levels of ferritin, B12, and vitamin D. So uh, that was kind of a it it, it was uh, it highlighted a, a key consideration for vegan diets that, that we need to be mindful of some of these micronutrients, but it also kind of served as an internal check. Like, yeah, you're a vegan group. They were really vegan and <laughs> we've got yeah. like the, the blood <laughs> levels to show it. Um, so, so that's something you want to be mindful of is when, when making a transition to a fully plant-based diet, it's not just protein. There's yeah. also some micronutrient considerations. And as you mentioned, Steve, you don't necessarily have to go all the way when you make this kind of change. And uh, one, one of the ways that Helms has talked about it in the past is uh, kind of like your carbon footprint. Like you, you can be a little bit more mindful of your impact on the environment without saying like, I will never use anything involving carbon again, right? You don't have to like 
swear off of all methods of transportation in order to to you know be a mindful uh, to, to be more mindful of your environmental impact. And so one of the things that you'll run into with a, a, a purely vegan approach, if you're trying to prep for a bodybuilding show, you're trying to get two, maybe even up to 2.5 grams per kilogram per day of protein, and you're trying to keep your carbs low, I, I don't know how you're going to do it without eating a diet that is almost all supplements. Like it, yeah. it gets very, very, very difficult because when you look at the, the typical plant-based protein sources, Aside from, you know, dietary supplements and powders, a lot of these whole food sources of protein carry a lot of carbohydrate with them. So uh, I think a vegan diet where you're trying to get plenty of protein in, it tends to be a pretty high carb diet uh, in most cases, or you're eating a ton of nuts and seeds, in which case you're going to have a lot of fat intake. Um, but, but it becomes very difficult to achieve these very high protein intakes while also keeping carbs and fats low. So like I, I know Helms has talked about, he, he kind of gravitates toward more animal-based protein sources as he gets lower and lower and lower with calories basically out of necessity. So even if, if you are like, I can't really go all the way in all stages of dieting, it's something that can be adapted. There's some flexibility there. But uh, you know, one thing worth pointing out is that if you're on an ovo-lacto vegetarian diet, so you're not vegan, you eat egg products and dairy products, you're fine even throughout prep. I mean, you, you've yeah. got uh, whey protein, you've got fat-free Greek yogurt, you've got egg whites, you, you've got plenty of options there. But uh, a very low-calorie, high-protein vegan diet, that's going to require a, a great deal of effort. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. And do you think in any case, you talked about kind of the micronutrient deficiencies, and I, I guess it could be your, just your take on getting blood work semi-regularly anyway for kind of natural competitors. It, or I say natural competitors because it's enhanced guys should be getting that more regularly, at least from what I've seen, um, seems to be quite important. But for natural competitors, do you see that as something that's just like prudent, especially if you're starting to exclude food groups to try to see where you are with various levels? I mean, there's certainly no downside uh, aside from the needle, uh, the, the needle <laughs> cost, practicality. Um, although I think you guys have a, a functioning healthcare system over there. So I, I don't know how the, the price factors into it, but... Uh, yeah, in, in America, I've been conditioned to just never get healthcare. Uh, that's not a recommendation, but <laughs> it can be so expensive. Uh, it's crazy. But um, but no, I mean, it, it, of course, it would be prudent whenever you're, I mean, whenever you're on any kind of super restrictive diet, a diet that cuts out food groups, or just a very, very low calorie diet, uh, having that blood work can be very informative. I remember one time uh, in you know, even if you don't want to proactively do regular blood work, just a more mindful monitoring of how you feel and and subjectively, you know, like if you're starting to feel very, very, very lethargic and you're like, I wonder if maybe I should check my blood iron levels. Um, I know for me personally, as a natural bodybuilder, uh, I, I started feeling different and I was like, this would make sense if I have like no testosterone in my body. But otherwise, it might be a medical issue. And so I go to the doctor. I'm like, can you just 
make sure I don't have any testosterone right now. Cause otherwise I feel like there's something going on and they're like, yeah, dude, you don't have any. And I'm like, perfect. <laughs> Uh, cause like, that's just how it goes. Like, I, yeah. I think I was like six weeks out, eight weeks out. I was lean, but still getting leaner, low calorie diet. And I was just like, yeah, I don't have any testosterone. So in that case, you know, the, the blood work was confirmatory, just like, let's go make sure that the changes I'm feeling in terms of mood state, energy level, all, all these other, th other things, let's make sure that, that there's a at least an identified uh, cause here. And then of course, if you go to the doctor and you're like, eh, I'm feeling lethargic and you know, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that they might look at your blood levels and say, okay, well, uh, you know, we, we're, we're noticing some low vitamin D, some low iron, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so then they can put you on, uh, you know, a, a sensible protocol to alleviate those issues. So I, I think, of course, it, it's always prudent. I mean, th that's like a, a good blanket recommendation for literally anybody is just keep an eye on your blood work in perpetuity. Um, uh, but But certainly, if you're not willing to do that, I, I would encourage people to to just be really mindful of how they're feeling. And if they feel any, um, you know, if, if they have a, a subjective change in their energy level, their mood state, the way they feel in, in those cases, it's probably not a bad idea to go check it out. The only other thing I was thinking is I, I, I imagine you've coached vegans and uh, I, I have a few and I'm always shocked by how high their fiber sometimes goes. Yeah. And that surprisingly, at least in my experience with my people that I've worked with, they seem to just be able to tolerate it. But I imagine as someone going that way, uh, as a bodybuilder trying to mass or something, you're like, suddenly I'm like, oh, I've heard the, the Revive Stronger podcast with Eric. I'm going to switch to all vegan sources. And suddenly I know even the mycoprotein has a bunch of fiber in there. If you go to beans and lentils, yet yeah, it really yeah. starts adding up. So I guess, do you think that's something people should at least be aware of to maybe taper into it a little bit or... Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something to be aware of. Um, you might also notice that your hunger management and satiety feels a little bit different if you do like a immediate switch and just completely change up your food sources. Uh, I have heard of that. Um, it, the, the fiber intake is a a notable change. Anytime you look at these interventions, the, the vegan diet uh, is going to have way higher fiber intake. But it does, for whatever reason, seem to be pretty well tolerated in most cases. Uh, I, I don't necessarily have a great explanation for that, um, but 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 it's something to be mindful of. And what, what the way I, I approach fiber uh, for all clients and for myself, whether whether we're talking vegan diet, omnivorous diet, whatever, is I think most people have a range of fiber intakes within which they can really comfortably operate. And so, like if you if your fiber starts getting low lower than is right for you, you'll often find issues with hunger and satiety management, you'll often find issues with stool consistency. And uh, that, that's not a, a talk that any coach loves having. But you know, let's talk about the consistency of your stool. Uh, so with low fiber, it starts to become apparent when you're below the range that that's going to work best for you. Conversely, when you start going above the range that's going to work best for you, you tend to notice uh, feeling really gassy, really bloated, just generally uncomfortable. Uh, you know, th there are some very clear indicators from your digestion uh, that we're probably above the range we're looking for. So you, you, you want to make sure that you're being mindful of that and settling into your ideal range. And some of those changes are, are pretty easy to make. Uh, you know, what you can do is look at, well, what are my carb sources as a vegan dieter? 
that are not meaningfully contributing to my protein intake, how can I potentially swap those out to reduce my fiber intake? So um, there are some easy substitutions you can make to alleviate that. But some people who are really sensitive to high fiber intakes, they, they might notice that just from their protein sources, in order to get enough protein on this diet, the fiber is just too high and it just doesn't work for them. It's just not a comfortable way of living. And that, that of course, is unfortunate because usually they're making this, this change for a specific reason. They're usually enthusiastic about it. And so then you have to have some conversations. Okay, what do we do here? We could maybe lean more on protein supplementation, which is a viable route. I mean, we don't want to be getting all of our protein from supplements uh, for a variety of different reasons, but we could lean maybe more on that. Or, uh, you know, maybe we take an approach like like some of these studies where they say, well, it's not necessarily supplementation, but let's get more of, you know, let's get more soy-based products into the diet that have low fiber, something like that. Another thing is thinking outside the box a little bit. So let's say that you're on a vegan diet for ethical reasons, and it's purely in the interest of animal wealth, animal welfare and environmental purposes. Um, depending on where you live, depending on that your area and the resources available to you, you might be able to find a creative solution such as there might be an egg farmer 15 minutes away. And so like if you're supplementing your, your vegan diet with eggs from a local farmer who you know, you can go drive by and make sure the chickens are happy. Like I think for a lot of people on, I've seen a lot of instances where people on vegan diets are are very comfortable consuming eggs uh, because they have the ability to make sure that animal welfare is being respected where they're getting their eggs from. So you, you can think outside the box and lean more on supplements or some non-conventional ways to get uh, protein sources into the diet without uh, sacrificing anything that's important to you with regards to whatever reason, you know, that, that yeah. you've opted for a vegan diet. Very well said. And the only, the final question I have on this is I think when anyone hears soy and they're a bodybuilder, uh, particularly males, I guess, it's probably more important for males. Um, yeah. They're kind of ears prick and they kind of shiver a little bit like soy. I'm not sure about it. Do you, I don't know how much you've kind of looked into soy. Um, what are the kind of, is there a certain amount we should restrict ourselves to in terms of yeah the impact on testosterone or estrogen? Yeah, you know, I've looked into it enough to kind of form an opinion. Yeah. Um, so there, there was a great study by uh, Mike Roberts lab. I know Cody Hahn was on the paper. I forget if Cody was the lead author or not, but they, they were looking at the effects of soy protein supplements and whey protein supplements, some, some other uh, supplements, looking at the effects on estrogen-related signaling and testosterone-related signaling, uh, estrogenic anabolic outcomes or androgenic outcomes. And within the range they were studying, nothing looked too bad from the from the estrogen or from the uh, the soy intervention and i think they were given upward i mean they were given oh, maybe 60 to 80 grams of soy per day in in some of, in, in part of the study I, I could be off on that but i do remember seeing that the the soy protein intake at, at phases of the study was pretty high uh, and, you know, for example, in this study here, the, the vegan longitudinal study, if you're worried about how it might impact your ability to achieve hypertrophy or something like that, then, you know, the, these subjects were consuming 58 grams a day of supplementary soy protein uh, and 
anabolic processes seem to be working just fine for them. But of course, a lot of people are worried about secondary things that are unrelated to anabolic processes. I feel pretty comfortable with soy protein. Um, there's some debate at very high intakes. A lot of the concern about soy comes from some case reports uh, where people are consuming a tremendous amount of soy protein each day. I, I don't even think twice about it. If you're talking about consuming 40, 60, 80 grams of soy protein per day, I really don't think twice about it. I don't tend to go higher than that just because of the unknown unknowns. You know, like I don't have enough data to alleviate my concerns of what happens when you have 120 grams of soy protein per day. Uh, it's probably fine, but I don't have enough empirical data to say I'm very confident that it's that it's totally fine. So I usually tell people there's no reason that soy can't be a, a major contributor to your daily protein intake, but maybe you don't want to go 100% soy. So cool. I, I like to limit soy protein intake down to like 60 or 80 grams per day as my top end and then work other sources in yeah. from there. And one of the really nice things is, so Steve, you remember gluten-free diets got really big, right? And there was the whole concept of um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity and things like that. And so I remember talking to people who had celiac disease and they're like, well, I'm slightly annoyed that everybody's like now, you know, oh yeah, me too. Because uh, this is like a thing that's not just like some trivial diet fad yeah. for me. This is like a thing that's impacted my life in a, in a major way. But they were also quite pleased because they're like, dude, I've never had this many gluten-free food options that are palatable and affordable and accessible. And so I think one of the nice things with, uh, with this new interest, this revived interest in vegan diets is, you know, it used to be if you wanted to get a, a vegan supplement, it's like, okay, what kind of soy do you want? You know, yeah. I mean, that, that was pretty much it. And now, as you mentioned previously, we're getting all these different blends that are coming out with hemp seed and pumpkin seed and, yeah. and rice and peas. And I mean, th there are a lot of options out there. Corn has a, a really extensive product line of imitating anything you'd wish to imitate. Uh, so yeah, I, I think soy absolutely can be a, a major contributor to your protein intake. But if you want to err on the side of caution, I, I'd say uh, I probably just wouldn't go above what i witnessed in that study I mentioned by uh, by Han and, and colleagues over in Mike Roberts lab. And I want to say that the top end of their soy intervention was around 60 to 80 grams. I, I might I might be completely off on that. But that that's a number that feels good to me by memory. Cool. No, I think that's that's awesome to hear because I think a lot of people would be a bit put off by it. And I know a lot of some of the vegan products are quite heavily soy based because it's I don't know, I guess it's versatile in many ways. But like you said, there are like a variety of different things we can rely on. I guess yeah. as ones you mentioned, we got like soy, you have the combined rice and pea, and then you have the mycoprotein, even that's that's three different ones right there. And I mean, I don't know how many different meat products people eat every day, but they're probably not having much more than three anyway. So if you're just to rotate one in and out here and there, that that's already quite cool. So yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I have a fact check on the fly. Because when I come on the podcast, I want to <laughs> give you the best possible content, Steve. Um, so the paper was Cody Hahn was the first author and the, the title was soy protein supplementation is not androgenic or estrogenic in college age men when combined with resistance training. I think at, at some phases of the intervention, they were consuming about 39 grams a day from soy protein. At some phases, they doubled the dose 
and had 78.4 grams per day, or it might've been, might've been like a subset containing consuming one or the other. But in any case, they provided pretty good evidence that up to that number about, about 80 grams per day was totally fine, which, uh, which is pretty much where I set my upper limit. And like I said, this other study, they were consuming about 60 grams a day. They didn't look at all these other estrogenic outcomes, but everybody was okay. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for, yeah, super comprehensive chat around this topic. And I'm excited because I don't think I've ever really talked to anyone in any sort of depth around it. And like I said, it's becoming more and more popular. So hopefully some people have got some food for thought for sure. Um, And I want to make sure if people want to, yeah, catch up, see what you're doing. Uh, when you get back into the gym, maybe you'll start, I don't know, showing off your lifts or something. Uh, I don't know if people now DM you and they're like, I want to see you lifting, Eric. Let me see Eric. Um, but anyway, where, where should they reach out to you? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can find me at strongerbyscience.com. We've got articles, we've got the podcast, and there's also the link to Mass, which is our research review every month. Um, outside of that, you can find me on Instagram. That's really the only place that I'm super active on social media well that's where i exist on social media i guess i'm not super active anywhere uh but you can find me there and my handle is at trexler fitness awesome and yeah i mean we mentioned mass several times we're proud affiliates have been since since launch and it's such a a great resource for this sort of thing and you can just you you can dig like dig and choose and search Uh, it's it's great as like someone who's interested in it or a coach for finding about anything actually uh it's it's great yeah i appreciate that and it's fun because i'm noticing more than ever i have continuity in my mass articles i'm i've been getting into protein a lot lately and the articles kind of build month over month it's it's fun to see as this new and we we only cover new evidence so it's not like we plan out some storyboarded narrative oh we're (laughs) going to build this over six months but as this new research comes out, you fold it into your previous understanding and you start to snowball this understanding. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the line of research looking at protein distribution, protein timing, and plant-based protein sources and protein quality, it's all converging really smoothly right now, which is, which is a nice thing to see. You know, it, it can be so, so frustrating when you see research that seems to be contradictory and you just can't work out these contradictions. But when we look at, you know, the improvements going from two high protein meals a day to three, and then the plateau beyond three, and how that fits in with a time restricted feeding research and how that fits in with the way that these vegan diets are designed, it's a really, uh, it's a really beautiful thing. So uh, yeah, if you if you join it on mass, you can watch this stuff develop in real time. And not just appreciate the conclusion afterward, but watch watch it all get kind of uh, incorporated as the research comes out. It's, it's a fun experience. For sure. So guys, uh, that will all be linked in the description box below and we'll catch you next time. Thanks again, Eric. Thank you. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. 
who Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.